and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Derek Woodgate. Derek is the president and chief futurist of the Futures Lab a foresight consultancy he founded in 1996. In addition, he is Assistant Professor in the ICT Department of the Engineering and Science Faculty at the University of ADGA in Norway and an Adjunct Professor in the University of Houston Foresight Program. Derek writes and speaks on a range of futures topics, particularly those relating to the impacts of future technologies on transformative societies, security, intelligent environments, policing, smart city development, future lifestyles and the changing human, and the future of work. Welcome to FuturePod, Derek. Thank you very much indeed, Peter. Very excited to be on FuturePod. Love the series. I've listened to a lot of them, of course, so I'm very happy to be here and looking forward to the conversation, of course. Thanks, mate. Question one, the most popular of our questions is for the guests to tell their story. So what is the Derek Woodgate story? How did you become a member of the Futures and Foresight community? I'd like to think that I became a member of the Foresight community when I was in my teens. Well, out of some bad luck, I suppose one would say, because um, my father died when I was two and my mother left me when I was three, but I was brought up by my uncle and aunt who became and adopted by them and ultimately amazing parents. And, you know, I feel like my father's with me all the time still. So, um, but he was incredibly influential. And the reason I say that is because he was, uh, I wouldn't say he was a futurist in the, in the sense of the profession, but he was very progressive and very forward thinking. And one of the things that he was particularly uh, forward thinking in was the arts. And so from very early age, he got me involved and got me engaged in taking me to exhibitions. And as I, you know, I moved into my teens, it was more you know, Dada-type exhibitions, Fluxus. Um, I became a massive Fluxus fan and, and did a lot of work with that. And so that was sort of quite important because that's sort of interesting in alternative progressive culture. This was in the, in the 60s, really led me to sort of you know, form bands. And um, as many of you know, I was in bands and films and God knows what else for quite a while. And all that actually, part of the sort of the reasoning behind that is that the sort of the abandonment issue that comes with losing your parents really led to me looking for performance, looking for attention, looking for doing something different. Yeah. And, and I think that through that, from a very, very early age, I always wanted to sort of really push the envelope and be a little bit renegade, mm-hmm. maybe even a rebel. And that took me into into areas that, some of which I shouldn't have been in, but a lot which really, <laughs> really expanded my, my world completely. And in parallel with that, um, when I was 16, I went off to, to Yugoslavia, originally on a school outing, but that outing turned into a lot more and um, I ended up in a school here for a while, which in Rijeka, where I now live. And I then came back every year, went back to the UK, finished high school, and um, then went off to university. And then at university, um, I actually took contemporary Slav studies. And then going back to what I said about this sort of need for you know recognition and whatever, which is still probably with me today, that was quite a quite important thing at the time because no one knew you know anything about Yugoslavia. And very few people knew what Sobokriot was. And so actually even the BBC came down to interview me at one point of what was his interest in these strange countries, these strange languages and so on. I then decided in after uni, after UCL, to uh, go off to do my master's in Zagreb. That I did on political economics. So straight away I was getting very much more into new systems, new new economic paradigms, and so on and so forth. And as you can imagine, doing it in, in, well, actually in Croatia now, but in Yugoslavia at the time, Mm -hmm. it was all around the self-management system and uh, new forms of socialism and so on. So it was very exciting and very progressive in that way. And I continued doing these things I call vanity projects, um, like, you know, performing, singing, performing, acting, so on and so forth. 
this all sort of came in parallel, which was which was actually very very good. Kept me in the arts, but at the same time was in these serious sort of things around the um, economics and politics. When I graduated, I went back to the UK and I got a job with the Yugoslav Investment Bank, working specifically on the evaluation, shall we say, of long-term economic development. And then two years later, um, I joined the Foreign Office, the FCO, and what did my training in France and a bit in Italy, and what then happened? They sent me straight back to Zagreb. So that was like, you know, already by that time, now I'm already, you know, four years again in Zagreb. Left after the four years, went out, lived in Bulgaria, Italy, a few other posts. And then the last posting back in Zagreb. Wow. By that time, I'd, I'd married a Christ and had two children who were born here. And, um, you know, stayed in Zagreb until the war, in fact, or just before the war, when I went back to the UK and ended up in Belgium and Holland before leaving for the States in 1999 and stayed there for 17 years. Now, in that sort of period, I um, worked in corporate um, after the Foreign Office. I left the Foreign Office, went to corporate, made far more money, for much money, of course. And... I started, I was very lucky, I was head of global strategy for a large corporation. And it was at the time of growing globalization. And so a lot of the work I was doing was looking at, again, evaluation of long-term projects, particularly where they were looking to invest in new factories and so on and so forth in countries that they really knew nothing about, including I didn't know much about either. And so we began to really do what ultimately became future studies for me, but um, was sort of like long-term planning. I didn't know there was future studies. Mm. Then in 1996, I left the corporation to actually to form my own company, but there was a, it was a, I was a bit lucky. It's not, you know, it wasn't sort of like, oh, I'm going to form my own company and just go out alone, having left a major corporation and so on and so forth. I was offered a role by Grey Advertising in London to do long, what they called long-term planning, and then which then became future studies, for their clients. And this was a time, I think you'll probably remember, when um, Faith Popcorn and um, mm. other people... Uh, John Naisbitt. Yeah, John Naisbitt, and the, I can remember the name of the woman now, who wrote Next. But they were doing a lot of work for the large corporations, particularly through agencies. Yeah. So, so I agreed to that. So I did it all under the company, which is you know, still the Futures Lab Inc. Um, so the company was in London at the time. And all my first clients, of course, or most of them, came through Grey Advertising. And I have to say, being one of the largest advertising agencies in the world, they were extremely big clients, all corporate. Yeah. Um, so I had P&G, I had Nestle, I'd all, I mean, really massive companies at the time. So you started as a trend hunter. Yes, I sort of, but doing, but more doing real future stuff for them because having done the work for, well, for, for VF Corp, actually, which is my, the company I work for, and sort of got us a better idea of how you sort of begin to do future studies. And I'd read quite a bit. Actually, I'd read Slaughter's New Thinking for the New Millennium mm. at the time um, and a load of other stuff. So I knew a little bit about it. So this all sort of went on, and I, I got a few of my own clients, MTV. We actually did one for VF. You know, and, and they were futures projects, but they were more like and, – and, and Peter Bishop we used to say this at the time. Well, it's sort of like future innovation. <laughs> and you say, no, it isn't, Peter. It's foresight. It's proper foresight. But he was right, actually. He usually is. Yeah, I know. But actually, uh, to be fair to Peter, I, I spoke to him when I – so I, I moved the company to the States in 1999. Kept the London office with the guys I'd been working with and continue to this day, actually, to work with them. The good thing about that was that Peter then told me about the course in Houston mm. and sent me a list of all the subjects. And, of course, I suddenly realized I knew nothing really about future studies. I knew what I knew. I knew how I was approaching it. I was reasonably well up at the time on certain things like you know, aspects of social change. And I knew a lot about tech. I mean, nothing about systems modeling or anything like that. But he really helped. I don't even know if he knows this because I'm not sure I actually told him that much at the time about it. But um, he really helped me. And then in the early 2000s, 
I came to present at UH and many, you know, quite a few times um, on what I was doing. And by then I had really good clients. And so when he sort of said to me, well, this is sort of like futures innovation. You're very creative. Very good. Yes, very good. But why don't you do some real future studies? And so I started reading all the course <laughs> stuff, you know, and of course I was there then. So, And then he started, to be fair, sending me students originally as interns. Yeah. And then they became employees. And of course, I had Wayne with me for about seven years. I had Gary with me. Well, a whole, a whole host of them yeah. right, over, the, over the time, over a long period of time. I taught you. <laughs> Shaping me up a little bit, you know. Of course, I argued with them all the time because I had my own systems and whatever. And then in um, 2004, I wrote Future Frequencies with Wayne. It says with Wayne because, you know, I, it was, I was dominating the argument because I really wanted to get through these things that I was doing and my interest in progressive culture and how I could use all that to sort of um, literally come up with amazing new thinking patterns for the future and whatever. And, of course, Wayne was, yeah, but you need to do some really good scanning systems. Um, which <laughs> was completely right. But based on all that, of course, and those of you who read the book, it is a bit of a mixture. And Oliver Markley, of course, wrote the foreword. So then he came in with his 30 years of experience or whatever it was at the time, 40 years of experience in the field. We really did put together then excellent six-stage process. We renamed everything. And I, if I'm really honest, the real beginnings of the real work I do today started around then, 2002, 2003, yeah. not really in 1996. I don't want to say this, you know, it sounds like, you know, my old clients in those days would come back on me and say, and they're all massive, so I don't want that. You didn't really do real future studies? What were you doing? You know, like selling under that. It was a misnomer. But, um, you know, I got a lot of help from from all these guys who really had been trained. And now, you know, 20 years later. You're training them. I'm training them. Yeah, there you go. I have been for 10 years or so now. At the beginning, when you, you asked me, you know, what's your story? And um, I sort of went through it. And I was thinking, um, you know, whether or not one thinks of their story as a continuous or discontinuous narrative, right, that sort of somehow pulls together. And I was thinking, well, I mentioned, you know, for my undergrad, I did contemporary Slav studies, which was basically history, politics, and economics of the Slav countries. And then I did political economics um, for my master's, and then for my PhD, much you know, so many years later, right? I ended up working on bringing together multimedia, uh, foresight-based education, and creativity. They all, they seem like they're completely disparate in many ways, but when I look at the content of each of them and I see them together, it really is a you know a there's a true continuum through all that. And I think actually the futures part is a continuum. Thanks, Derek. So let's move to second question and one where I encourage you to, of all the frameworks and ideas you play with, to, to just choose a framework, approach, method, philosophy, you choose that is central to who you are and what you do and explain the use of it to the listeners so what do you want to talk to the listeners about this is a this is a terrible question <laughs> selecting one i just told you i, I know literally spent my whole life you know trying to come up with these things um, Give us a know, performance, of I, Derek. <laughs> yeah, I could think about 3D thinking worlds and all this stuff that we worked on from 2004 onwards. Um, there's loads of things I could talk about. But I will talk about one of four approaches I use in what I call the art of awe, which are in our stage four, basically, futurescaping. And they're all involved in the work that we do once we've sort of established some we call futures concept platforms, into beginning to build scenarios. Mm -hmm. One of them is rhizomatic thinking. I don't want to go into a whole thing on that. We have a thing around the flux of becoming and so on. We have what, another one's imagining the abstract. And the last one on this is um, re, what we call remixing creative imagination. But the one I'm going to choose is to think like a DJ. 
partly because I've found it since I sort of began to to develop it in 2003, I suppose now, has been the most successful in terms of really coming up with, I hate to say that you use the word unique, but very different perspectives, different concepts, different ideas. Um, and what it is, is exactly as it's called. Um, it's a thinking technique for input into creating scenarios. It's based upon concept and context remixing. So if you imagine that you've done all the, the work in the first three stages and the early parts of stage four, and that you know, you know, you have pretty good ideas on your, on, if you want to talk about alternative futures, I don't, but we build these things called future concept platforms. We've done future landscapes by them. We've done a lot of simulation. We've used all those tools, which is wheel and causal and integral and opportunity mapping and all these other things. So we've got a relatively strong, sort of some strong concepts, futures, potential futures concepts and opportunities. What we're looking to do now is to really, really deconstruct these and play with them. Okay, now everyone does that in their own way. But I came up with this system, I think like a DJ, which basically, if you think how, you know, just starting from how, how I thought at the time a DJ thought, you know, gets lots of different inputs, looks for the, the baseline for that, builds stems, which we call tagging, tries to fit them together in some way by tone, rhythm, and all the other things one does, and then plays with them and, and, and does a lot of remixing. And so the first system I built um, in 2003 used images, various types of images, cards, other sort of words, images, video, all sorts of sort of different forms of media and different sort of ideas, but in concepts based on ideas that we could throw into the mix. And we, we played with all those. And then what I did was I created this ten, these 10 steps, which were um, deconstruct, mutate, spin, transform, migrate, displace, simulate, fuse, translate, and recombine. And at that time, in the early time, I sort of played with these and I had different methods and different approaches of how I could get the client in the teams to use each of these. And some were done in parallel, some were, in general, it was done um, in sequence, right, one after the other. And each team would take, you know, in the sequence, would take one of those and start to play. And they had certain um, criteria they had to use and what did mutate mean, how you could use mutation, and so on and so forth. And that all went very, very well. And then in 2010, DJ Spooky, who's referred to uh, as the philosophical DJ, Paul D. Miller, and I were doing a, a South by Southwest panel just the two of us playing off each other. And he's sort of a mate of mine. I'd known him a long time by then. And that was pretty sort of exciting and different ways of looking at, at the future. Um, but after that, I said to him, listen, I've been doing this thing like a DJ thing for the last five or six years. And to be fair, it's my way of understanding what a DJ does. What does a DJ actually do, Mr. Philosopher DJ? And he took me through the process from beginning to end, which pretty well mirrored the steps, but, you know, certainly transformed my understanding of what some of those things meant. And that was phenomenal. And I then sort of really took this sort of concept to another level, uh, continued and used totally different types of media. And as things have gone on, obviously, we've been able to sort of be much more into sort of simulation and all types of aspects of that. And then about three years ago, Working with Helga, I got her to do a digitalized version of this, whereby we obviously reconsidered what, for example, what the base was, right? So we started, you know, the base was future core concepts, for example, or future core context, depending on what sort of way we played with it. And then she could develop that base by looking through whether it was a domain or any other aspects, you know, sort of parallel domains and, and, and so on and so forth. And we could begin to sort of create. I mentioned stems earlier. Stems is a sort of musical term for that. But, you know, keys where we could sort of put in loads and loads and loads of keywords, visuals, any other tags and anything that we really sort of wanted to, to put into this and then begin the process from there. And then we built for this 
three or four other, so seven in total, keys. So you can channels of how you change the paradigm. So you can put different paradigms against that, different worldviews against the, the core stuff that's coming out. And this is sort of mixing as you go along. Then you have all the other buttons, you know, the mutate, the spin, and so on and so forth. And then you have style, which is the emotional aspect. So how do we bring emotion into this concept or context? And then we have tone, which is the feeling. So what's the, you know, what do you feel now when you've got it? Is this right? Is it working? Is it coming together? Is it connected? Is it disconnected? You know, what are we seeing here? Is it, are we sort of really shifting too far towards divergent thinking? And, and we have a lot of other ways of sort of countering that. We have things like collision versus convergence, and loads of other things I won't go into. And then we have rhythm, which is the how, how it's changing, right? So, and we can begin to sort of understand what the timelines of this thing. We, we're normally working with um, Horizon 3 and 4. And then we begin to remix it, right? And so we can, the actual, the computer then begins to sort of, help do this for us. And at the same time, I tend to have a group who are doing it still by hand, so I can see some sort of parallel ideas coming out, contexts and concepts. And what we come up with, so what we started with is this um, futures core concept or futures core context, if we're going from the contextual perspective, and we get a completely new remixed idea, which invariably doesn't seem to have too much well, it has all the core things in it, but of course has a completely different understanding and different perspective and multiple perspectives of, of what that concept could be. And I found that really, really useful as a tool. And then we take that further, the ideas from that, into the, some of those things I talked about you know, earlier, imagining the abstract and, and so on and so forth. And that allows us then to have already really sort of very, very, very different contexts and concepts for whatever we're, our start points are for building scenarios. Mm. I'm interested, Derek, in, because you are a performer, but in terms of the audiences and their experience of the performance, where they are in that creative unstructuring and, and restructuring process. And I would imagine if we're running this in a commercial environment or an organisational structure or a political hierarchical, what's your observation of the participant experience of that? Just from a perspective, I mean, I'll, I'll talk about it from maybe three different types of client. Let's put it like that. So um, we've been working for three years now with the Ministry of the Interior in Abu Dhabi in the Emirates. And first of all, we've been doing full foresight processes with them, which is why we've been there so long, but we've done a lot of training um, at the same time. And all of them have to go through this. So this is a, a country that's not, at least the people we're working with, are less familiar with DJs in general, I suppose one would say. And so to them, it's, I don't think they're looking at it from the DJing perspective. Okay, I don't think that's... I think they're looking at it from the practical perspective of the various tasks that they're required to do over an eight-hour period, actually. And my experience of this, having done it so many times with them, is that they love the outcomes. And I think as they go through each step, they find the outcome absolutely fascinating, that they can come to such different concepts, ideas, perspectives of something they started with. I think that is, you know, even for that type of group is where the excitement lies in this and why they really want to keep doing it. Mm. Because what they're seeing as they're going through the process is literally <laughs> that there isn't one, not that there isn't one future, obviously they know that, but there are so many different ways of hybridization of any context, any concept, and so many different contexts for every concept that they begin to feel like that they're really getting a deeper, much deeper understanding of the possible or potential futures that they're working with. Mm. And I, I, that's my real experience in that, even though often they find it odd. But, they, you know, there's very good explanations of what, transformation means and migration means and so on and so forth. So 
I would imagine they're being comfortable with the notion of the future is a completely open, correct, contextual beast. And correct. if they come from a hierarchical organisation structure, that level of freedom of thinking could be seen as risky or dangerous, and yet here you are liberating them to think that way. Yeah, and I think that's very important where you're dealing with things like security and so on, which are really complex subjects, right, because... Well, and we go into the whole thing about security, but they're very. I mean, first of all, it's very complex because the number of ministries, the number of organisations that are actually involved today in that process has grown. Mm. It used to be very much the task of the Minister of Interior Affairs or um, another government you know, body. Now it's spread across pretty well all ministries, and that's you know that's really helping them. I think this helps them to understand the real complexity of this mm. rather than as a simple sort of solution to whatever they're trying to think. Yep. When you get to the corporate side, it's sort of funny because it's okay, very different. So over the years, I would say that on average, the core group of people that we would work with in a corporate, and I think you, anyone that's seen the website will know we've worked with hundreds of major corporations, tend to be made up of about six people and those six people are all, I mean, I want them to be completely different and that they represent different departments and different aspects, right? So a lot of the time, the the younger people love this. Mm. Some of the older tech people, so the head of research or some tech research or whatever, would only like this because it comes at a point within the process where one's done incredible due diligence through all the modeling and systems work and really deep scanning and all the things we talked about earlier, you know, which they've seen, right, that they feel free to do this type of thing at that point. If one were to do this too early, I think you completely lose them. But, you know, by the time you've worked with people for three or four months or whatever it happens to be by the time we do that, then they're feeling much more comfortable and they love the fun of it, right? I mean, it's like, my God, we've done all this real sort of – slog well you've told us to use in stage three maybe six or seven different approaches to try and establish the same thing Mm. that was hard work yeah i think they 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 find this liberating actually after all that yeah but students so they're the other group i obviously have to do this with (laughs) often wondering what the hell has to do with the future studies course (laughs) but once they get into it they're pretty good and with them because i don't have the same amount of time i tend to sort of shortcut it for them which you can do but then they go and do it at home you know for part of their assi- an assignment and yeah. they come back with some pretty interesting stuff so you know i wouldn't be doing it for 15 or well, 17 years now i suppose if i didn't feel like it had legs and that you know and we've adapted it over time and and there are a lot of other you know ways of doing this which other which colleagues do you know all the things that people um jake and people like that have done with cards you know i mean and all that over the years i mean have been other exciting ways of doing this. I just chose this, you know, think like a DJ framework because to me it gave me a really good structure on which to to build some method, you know, a methodology that um, made sense to me. But you know, I'm not mm. suggesting that uh, everyone needs to rush off and do that. They should do their own ways of doing it. But I, I've, I've found it very useful and very exciting. Do you use music in the process? Yes, of course, but not in the way that you would think about. It. I use music not in the in that in the thing like a DJ process. I use it in interestingly imagining the abstract. Why? Because a friend of mine way back in the day when I was still involved with music, David Coulter, said to me. When I finish a piece, he's a composer, I always look for the missing colours. And it reminded me of that Zizek um, quote um, where he talks about evolution of ideas take place in the vast synchronous external matrix. You know, this sort of thing that it's not the... and, And DJ Spooky always says, the real knowledge is in the rhythm in between the lines, right? So when I'm working with imagining the abstract, in the abstract, then I bring in music and I get them to do these things, to to work with that and to tell me. And I want to know what sort of emotions these colours are bringing. 
what what are colors what the colors do what are they what do we mean by all that yeah and it's and i found those types of things really worthwhile in the way that we um approach all these things yeah at the end of the day they're just fuel they're building <laughs> amazing scenarios right uh, and just one word on scenarios when i talk about scenarios I mean, that's an area where we don't do traditional scenarios, so we do a lot today. Uh, and, and luckily, I teach um, in Norway. My students are all multimedia students. So. so we use a lot of AR today, 3D worlds, 3D thinking worlds, particularly for building things. We use um, simulation a lot. So our scenarios are not, you know, you can usually go into them and play around, and they're very, very interactive. So they're not, they're still narrative, but they're new forms of narrative. Thanks, Derek. Thanks, that's fascinating. Third question, where I talk to Derek, global citizen of the world, or at least a few countries in the world, about the emerging futures around you that are getting your attention, that you find yourself paying particular attention to emerging around you, the things that excite you, the things that possibly concern you. But how does Derek sense the emerging futures around him? I think that, you know, I'm always looking for harmonization, just like everybody else on the steep stuff, right? So that when I talk about, you know, this whole thing about looking to, for a progressive world, for a, a very positive progressive world, you know, the things like ethics and stuff are very critical. They're particularly critical when we're dealing with, you know, transdisciplinarity and hybridization of new technologies and and a lot of the work I'm currently doing, I, I, I talk about two aspects of it, which I think are sort of critical to what I'm doing. One of them, and you mentioned in the intro, around you know smart cities, future of work, and those sort of areas. And one of the things on future of work, um, I've been doing a lot of work on, and written a couple of papers recently. I've been on what we call HMR, which is human machine resources, right, based on where we feel the work sphere is moving, and that's all aspects of, of work, whether it's the workplace, jobs, skills, and so on and so forth, um, approaches, management, and so on. Within that HMR, one of the critical things is understanding that machines and humans are assets, that they consider assets in the same or in a similar vein, and that we put values to those assets and that we can then look at allocation based on a wide variety of criteria, um, not just performance aspects, but you know, a lot of the cognitive aspects and so on and so forth. And as we begin to bring greater levels of neuroscience into this area, we're, we're able to sort of, or we'll be able to understand a lot better the value of both. But most of what we're looking at is collaborative intelligence, collaborative knowledge, what type of things they can build together, what does that change? And this is particularly important when we're looking forward to, you know, self-directed machines, self-directed AI and stuff like that. And um, particularly that sort of area of, you know, the new types of skills and jobs and all the things we work around that. So we're looking, obviously, at the application of this roughly around 2035 to 2040 specifically. And what it has meant is that rather than think of the machine simply as taking jobs, or that you are thinking of the machine as a support mechanism, we begin to look at a world which is not just human-centric, but which is human-machine-centric. Machine so it's a, a, I don't want you to misunderstand me on this, obviously, overall, most of my work is, is still focused on a human-centric universe. But still, it's been very, very important. And when the projects, some of the projects we've worked on, like space habitats and stuff like that, that's really critical. Where you look at, you know, a lot of the places um, where there are planets only have machines, right? So if we think about Mars today. Um, and a lot of the work that's, that's coming along in those ways in, in space habitats clearly understanding how those two things can ultimately work together and what roles they're going to play and uh, the most effective, uh, effective from all perspectives, importance of that integration 
of the human machine um, is going to be critical to whether or not what space habitats are and how they function and how they interrelate. And, and it's not just what's happening on the habitat. Of course, it's the infrastructure, infrastructure connection of that habitat to our own world and all the things that are happening with, you know, with quantum communications and so on and so forth, uh, mesh nets and, and so on and so forth over the next um, decade or so that interface and interact with those. And I, I really find that's one area that is critical in the work that I'm doing. Another area is on the um, exascale computing. First exascale, I suppose, is coming up this year. I was talking to Elaine Rayborn recently, who is at Sandia Labs and, and is one of the members of this project, their project particularly. And they're one on, on way, I think, to having it out this year. And of course, that's going to fundamentally change how we are able to envisage things like, you know, forces of the universe, how we look at precision, you know, medicine in the future and plants for biofuels and all these things. I mean, we're talking here something that's a thousand times faster than petascale, which is what the largest supercomputers can do at the moment. You know, it's a billion, billion per second. The things it can simulate are going to be phenomenal. So in that sense, um, these are some of the, the aspects that, that I'm looking at particularly, not necessarily from the pure tech point of view, although I like to know how it all works, but what does that mean for, for us? Mm. What does that mean in terms of human change? What does that mean in social change? Well, Derek, I mean, a question for you is that we've been living through a, a two-year experiment of just the how the human-centric system deals with something like a coronavirus. Yeah. And I'm not sure the human systems, certainly at the political level, have coped too well with this. I mean, how sanguine are you that <laughs> the human system, before it gets help from machines, is going to govern us well enough to get to that future? Well, I think that's part of my HMR. I don't think it will. You know, one would have to look back over... Um, from a, from a his, historical perspective of this, and, and really map this obviously really clearly. I'm just giving you a general perspective on it, but I think that these, well, as we've seen with the corona, right, the core issues, however horrifying and dramatic they were seen at the very beginning. So if we go back a year and a half, seem like something that, yeah, this is horrifying, but we're going to contain this. You know, the summer is when the summer comes. It's all going to go away, right? That was how many people said that. Mm. None of us, well, this is why there are so many conspiracy theories, I suppose, <laughs> about the whole thing, is because quite honestly, none of us are feeling particularly confident, right, in, in understanding any of it. And a lot of us have our double vaccine or whatever, you know, and I've had friends die and I've had friends who are still not very well from it, including people in my soccer team who I would not have expected to have that many problems because they're really seemingly really fit and healthy and tough guys, right? But And I just don't think that we, that I have a feeling. I wrote a piece because um, I'm also on the executive board of the Center for Future Studies at the University of Dubai. And, and with my colleagues there, I wrote a piece about May um, 2020 on what I felt were going to be the implications, right? From this, what was the future implications of all this? You know, so I and hundreds and hundreds of other futurists and non-futurists written all this, and I was looking at it a few days ago, and I was wondering whether or not what I wrote was still relevant. And it was not near in. I deliberately did not take the sort of near in. I looked more at the the slightly longer term. I mean, ten to fifteen year out, I suppose, not that not that far out. And I looked today and I was thinking the optimism that I'd put into that paper back then, that piece back then, hadn't you know, fully dwindled. <laughs> Obviously, I'm still very optimistic. But so many of the ideas just seemed like either they weren't relevant anymore or just were not what was going to come out of this. And this was particularly along economic change, social change. I mean, ultimately, maybe, hopefully they will, you know, but... You know, it's very easy when you have something this large to think 
oh, the whole world's going to change because of this. Mm. This is the end of neoliberalism. This is X. This is these sort of ma- major things that are going to happen. But I think we're all really still stuck, wondering what the hell we're going to do. Are we going to have a conference in Berlin three months from now? Can I travel to the States in two weeks? Can you ever leave Australia again? So, yes, I mean, I tend to agree with what you're saying, but I think that it has definitely shown human weakness. I don't mean weakness in more systematic weakness Mm. of human managed societies, right? I mean, the amount of corruption. So all the things that we know are part of everyday (laughs) society that we would talk about in a totally different context are there for us to see, right? Yeah. And I think that's what I'm going through at the moment, you know, debating with other people and within myself, really. I suppose if you want to put it through the metaphor of uh, the three horizons from uh, Mr. Curry, that we're not in horizon three, we're not in horizon one, we're in the messy bit that's horizon two at the moment. Yeah. Just trying to work our way through. At the same time that we watch the failure of large-scale political human systems, we're also seeing remarkable signs of the seeds of change. And I think the work aspect, particularly, you know, where and how we work and so on and so forth, for a lot of people, I'm not, and this is obviously not, doesn't apply to a lot of jobs, but certainly to a, you know, a relatively large group of people, that's certainly been a change. I mean, it's, it's an interesting point because in 2010, I'd been working on a project for Fiat for two years, Fiat and, and New Holland. And when the, two, the 2008 recession, whatever one wants to call it, happened, someone stood up at a meeting and said to me, do you believe that everything that we've worked on for this 15-year plan that we've worked on is actually now irrelevant because of the economic crisis? And I thought about it for a second because I obviously didn't want to necessarily say that all the work that I've been doing and the few hundreds of thousand dollars I'd been paid were a complete waste. And I said to them, it's 2010. Ten years ago, we had the dot-com crisis. Look up. Who are the largest organizations in the world currently? The survivors of the dot-com. Okay. I, I sort of have to take that type of attitude to a certain degree on this issue. Hope on the new distant, too distant future that somehow we're going to find some real solutions to this. Thanks, Derek. Fourth question, the communication question. Put simply, how do you explain to people what you do when they don't necessarily understand what it is you do? Well, from a professional question that I had to deal with from the very beginning, I've had my website, not not current website, obviously, but a website since 1997, I think it was. By 2001 or two, I had to find a tagline. I mean, I'd always sort of had some sort of tagline, but it wasn't really particularly good. And I worked through this really, really hard on this. And I thought, well, at the time, most of my clients were corporate clients. I mean, you know, my words changed. I mean, I suppose today um, I have a fairly even split between institutional, corporate, and sort of NGO type, I mean, all sorts of clients, right? I mean, but I came up with the tagline, I'm in the future potential business. Mm-hmm. Not even the future's potential business, which I have now, but in the future potential business. That's what I came up with, right? Because it was one way of explaining roughly what I did and what I do. So from a business perspective, I understood that. Oh, really? So what you're doing is optimizing our future potential. Yeah, I suppose so. As the years have gone on, I've still found that a fairly simple way and, and an interesting. I don't know if you were at the APF meeting. There were three of us on the stage, and I can't remember who the, who the others were now particularly, but I, I mean, if I do, I wouldn't say. But we were asked to give a – it's an elevator talk, right, on what we did. And mine was literally that. I mean, well, I changed it by then, I think. So it was, I mean, the future's potential business, right? And then someone, one of the other two, tried to explain future studies or foresight, and someone shouted from the audience – we were not talking about the elevator and the word trade center or whatever it was. We laughed, of course, but actually we'd all been through that. Yeah. And what I do today is people ask me, 
is I create futures or you know the future if I'm talking about the futures for major organizations so I've not really changed my story that much in terms of corporate and, and it's slightly different with institutional but you know I don't really know what else to say thanks Terry Last question, I'd, would you like to talk to the listeners about the other small job you have, which is organising the Federation's World Conference this year? Hopefully we have one. Well, we'll have one, I'm sure. The key thing is, it's going to be face-to-face, I hope. I'm really fighting for this. Yeah, you're right. I'm chair of the organising committee and of uh, the 24th WSF World Conference. It's going to be held in Berlin. 26th to the 29th of October. And in my day, they would have said be there or be square, right? It's going to be amazing. It's going to be held at the Humboldt Carré Conference Center, which is a very rich history in progressiveness, innovation, and so on. Amazing architecture. We have five rooms. I'm programming them very differently. Of course, we have, for the plenary sessions, and I'll talk about speakers in a minute, plenarium, as I'm calling it, which is the main conference hall. It seats 250. So at least I want to see 250 of there. It's 250 plus, actually. And that will be one of those rooms that continues throughout. We have the globalarium, which is where we're going to be talking about, it's a sort of a perfect platform, actually, for interactive presentations on the big challenges, on planetary futures and Topics such as the future of democracy, ethics, policy implications, and regional collaboration, and sustainable development, and all these sort of big challenge education, obviously. And then we have um, the sensorium, which seats about 40. Oh, the, the other one was 80, the second one, where we will have presentations, panels, scientific papers, and they're going to be about affect, affective aspects of futures, so about the live, what I call living the futures, sensing and connecting with futures by transporting the spectator or ourselves into unknown landscapes and sensing deeper, deeper potential and, I don't know, leveraging the power of immersion and all those fabulous things, you know, um, how we create sort of um, new types of scenarios and things like that. Then there's a laboratorium, which might be really a playground, also 40 participants, and it's sort of a playground and showcase for experiential and experimental futures for progressive techniques and tools and the integration of emerging technology into the field. And then we have the Imaginarium, the last one, which is also 40 people. And that will be focused on imagination and artistry. And we're going to set the scene for creative futures through workshops, group, you know, group sessions and inspirational disruptive visions. And there'll be all sorts of things like sci-fi and everything else. And then we have these other rooms for catering and networking and debate, I hope, and all the other things that go with that. So um, it's a it's a really beautiful venue. Mm. We've already got a sort of part program. I'm still working on the program with um, the other rest of the organizing team. But we have some... Very interesting speakers. We have, um, um, in addition to you know, a lot of our own, we have a number of outside speakers like Bio um, Akamalafe. He's an international speaker, poet, curator, and activist. Many of you know him. Great writer, part of the Emergence Network. So he will be there. People like uh, Dr. Karina Visanova. She's um, a specialist in sustainability. So she puts together design, sustainability, and futures. Um, we have Dr. Stanza, Steve Tanza from the UK, who is basically a digital artist with whom I've worked for, you know, very, very, he's probably the best known international award-winning digital artist at this moment. He's won 20 international art prizes, um, pretty well all of the main ones across the whole globe. He's exhibited in I don't know, 150 international exhibitions and the Venice Biennale and the Victoria Albert, the Tate. And then we have people like, really critical, um, Gabrielle Ramos. She's the Assistant um, Director General for Social and Human Studies at UNESCO. We have Rio. Rio's going to be speaking. I put him in this fabulous group, as, of course, will be Rio Mira, right, um, who's head of um, the 
the Futures Literacy at UNESCO. We have Dr. Issa Ansari, Ansari, who's president of our largest partner for this event, which is he's from the Prince Mohammed bin Fahd University, PMU for short. Oh, I didn't mention Eric, uh, the president and chairman of the board of the WSF, of course. He'll be opening it, and um, most of you know him, but uh, he's also a senior policy advisor to the Ministry of Education and Research and Norwegian Ministry. Um, and then Roberto Polly, um, he's a professor of philosophy of science and social foresight from the University of Trento in Italy. Yeah, I mean... Sounds great. Who should be thinking, I can go to this? Is it public? It's public in the sense that we have fees for, you know, for members, and then we have fees for non-members, which are just 50 euros more, so it's not like some major difference. There's, uh, obviously, we want to see some students from the area. We'd like to see, obviously, our partners, I guess. But, you know, it's, it's for anyone who really would like to sort of really understand I like to think of it in terms of anyone that likes to think about the future, but I, but it's more than that because a lot of it's going to be about methodology. But on the other hand, there's these people like, you know, Stanza explaining how he brings the future into his work, mm-hmm. right? Um, a lot of it, which is really applied work to the development of smart cities and stuff like that. So, you know, really I would like to see not just our members, but a very broad group of of attendees from all sorts of fields. So I think it's exciting. It's going to be great for every country. And where you're having regional, we're having, you know, from all the main regions, there'll be joint meetings and discussing how they can work together in the future. Young futurists, there is also a, it's a hybrid conference in the sense that we are doing an online version. It's going to be different and some of it will be covering the main conference, but, you know, those of you that can't make it, don't give up. There's still the potential to be there, not just in spirit, but actually attending. Great. Obviously, wish the conference well. I hope that circumstances allow Australians to get on planes, but in the absence of that, I'm sure it will be a marvellous, marvellous conference. On behalf of the Future Pod community, Derek, it's been an absolute pleasure to catch up again. It's been a long time. Thank you very much for participating. That's been, it's been very, very enjoyable. From my perspective, I'm very, very grateful for you to invite inviting me. Love the series, continue the series, and I'm looking forward to hearing who's next. Thanks a lot, Peter. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.